Hello, my name is Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In today's episode, we dive in to some really fascinating topics about what goes on behind the scenes with AI, specifically data center infrastructure and hardware, two of my favorite topics. And in doing so, we actually discuss broad ranging concerns and opportunities and market blockers around AI, how deeply it can impact innovation, companies, privacy, legislation um, from the frame of hardware and automation. And then we get into a more deep question that we will discuss in a future roundtable about what unlocks innovation in general. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. How are you, Dan? I'm great. I was in Toronto last week at a conference called Infrastructure. It was put I on by your debrief for that. Yeah, it was. It was kind of amazing. It was all about it. Was, it was all about AI, right? Like the whole thing was about AI and how it impacts the data center business. Um, so, I mean, there were people there from real estate. Here's the thing. If you've got a hundred acres of land, pretty much anywhere that has good access to power, um, you are now retired. It's a life-changing event, <laughs> financial event, because these data centers are just desperate for capacity. Well, it, it's it's not just electricity, though. It, it's also cooling. Well, yeah. So the the power part the, the power part comes into cooling too, right? Sort of. Uh, I mean, you you can you can provide power and still not have access to right. good cooling. So proximity to a water source is much preferred than by, by many. Um, there was an air versus water debate for sure. But if you're in the Nordics, all you do is just build your data center. And then you, there's one data center that it's, they're called Glesis, G-L-E-S-Y-S, which must be a foreign kind of meaning, but um, they're built in the Nordics. And because of the weather, they just cool automatically. And then they use all the heat from their data center to heat like an entire city, to power an entire city. It's really it's really cool. I, I love I love the integrate. This is this is what's so sad to me is how much we've missed the opportunity to do in integrative um, utility work like that. Yeah, uh, I, I can think of several uh, Canadian territories uh, cities that, uh, in that case, would only lack uh, a steady power supply, and, and I guess a good way of, of of providing internet connection which right now is uh, also spotty but uh, yeah it, it's not the first time i've heard that idea floating around like uh, particularly like uh, in like in the northern end of the paris uh it's right on top of the canadian shield so it's a it's a geographically stable place um you've got access to water the only problem there is internet and power there so 
the only problem. <laughs> um, but the, a lot of the conversations were also about, you know, how much are hyperscalers impacting the hosting business overall and the data center business overall. And, um, and then uh, and we can talk a little bit about that, but I thought what was really interesting too, about the entire conversation around generative AI was the world thinks we're a lot further along in gen AI than we are. Um, and primarily because it's so expensive to train models and, you know, they were, they were saying something like, you know, make a $980 million investment to earn a $100,000 client and you'll have $260 left over to pay your engineers. Something like, like the math, <laughs> the math of Gen I, AI, the way people think about it is not how it's actually playing out and the enormous amount of capacity it, it takes to, um, to support that. And then all the conversations about GPUs. Um, of, you know, just the lack of GPUs and where they're going, like 20% going to China. I think it was like 40 something percent going to US. What was really interesting to me is the fourth hyperscaler um, isn't Oracle, isn't Red Hat, it's Meta. Meta for consumption of mm. um, AI kind of space is just a, a giant so um, I, I can't believe that. I, I mean, with their with their virtual reality platform, they they they, they need. I mean, they, they, maybe they they don't need Genai, but they, they definitely need uh, the uh, machine learning part that um, that makes it a smooth visual experience. So yeah, definitely heavy on on the GPU side there. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I, I've had it, I, I've heard it that um, several cloud providers are getting figuratively and literally in hot water because of their um, AI platforms, because of their excessive power consumption and mm -hmm. excessive water consumption as well for cooling. Yeah, a lot of these guys that are developing data centers uh, talked a great deal about uh, you've got to be a good neighbor in your communities and you've got to understand the stresses that you're putting on the community, but also the the benefits that you're bringing to that community and how to communicate those appropriately. Um, so, I mean, there were so many things as usual, even on these calls that were way over my head, <laughs> but, um, but I really felt it was, it was just, it was interesting to be in a room with all these, a lot of CTOs, a lot of CEOs, you know, it was very high level executives that were having these conversations. So, um, Cool. And the data centers are not worried about the hyperscalers right now because they know that they're the ones that are building the capacity, right? So the, the other thing I'm also hearing is that from an implementation side, uh, like integrating Gen AI into products, it has yet to be shown like commercial com commercially practical like it it definitely attracts users and we know that again features can make or break a, a product uh but the the companies that are implementing it are finding it hard to um um to, to get a profit of the ai itself so it's a loss leader 
Let me ask you a question. So how does that apply to Tesla? Is Tesla not generative AI? Like the cars? Oh, the self-driving mode? Yeah. Hmm. yeah it's, not, it's not generative. It's not generative. It's, it's machine learning, essentially. It's traditional right. AI. <laughs> <laughs> Good old AI. Yeah. yeah. It's I mean, supervisory AI. Supervisory. There you go. That makes sense. So when we touch the button and we say, you took that turn too wide, that actually goes to actually somebody who's supervising it doesn't like turn into a large language model. Okay. It's just kind of... It's a big data model. So Tesla has a data feed from every vehicle where they aggregate all of the position. So that's, you know, acceleration, braking, position all you know hundreds of different attributes in real time that get pulled off of each vehicle that goes in this giant data set that they then mine uh, uh to to build the self-driving capability now how they do that technically under the hood as it were pun intended uh i don't know the details of that but in general terms that's what they're doing yeah it, it's sen it's sensor data it's not natural language yeah, and so, it's opticals, right? So they're not using lidar like some of the other right. uh, companies. So, so it's it's actually image data that they're. So there, there's obviously a image processing, yeah. image, image processing element to that as well. So and there's when a you guys GIS are... element. Sorry, sorry. I I just wanted to get that in there because the way they do the geospatial is enables them to almost flatten the files to minimize the amount of MK or MB that's being used. And it's all fed through SCADA, but it's their own version, which has regressive and supervisory and all sorts of other forms of AI, because there are many different forms. What's missing from it is the generative in the sense of the human interface, right? Like, if you think about generative AI, it is in a sense, the ultimate in HMI, human machine interface. And that's what allows them to generate the telemetry. And if you look at the cyber side to it, it's actually in the cyber, meaning the cybersecurity side that a lot of the heavy lifting gets done as opposed to in the images. The images are just pulled for um, a geospatial reference but the security hits in to those files in a very unique way. There's a lot of work being done in Windsor on that uh, cyber arc um, uh, vehicula. Uh, there, there's like six different companies that are working on it directly with Tesla. So they're pulling in all sorts of different kinds of information. Well, they have to, right? Because they can't allow any kind of an interference if you're about, if, if the autonomous car needs to brake and you hit the brake, they have to allow you to do that, but they can't allow anything else to do that. Wow. Um, yes. right? So that you couldn't, you couldn't be taken over. I know, right? That's the biggest fear. Like so many yeah. your car, but there is manual override on everything. Anyway, just to summarize, you guys are all right. Um, there, there, what was really interesting is nobody was dystopic about uh, Gen AI in the conference at all. 
Um, but they were like, this is so not as far along as people think. The, but it still is a big future. It's just not where people think it is right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's, it's kind of like a talking parrot is not in, as intelligent as a human. The, the thing that I, I think I hear when I when I hear the experts talk doomsday scenarios, and I, I, I ex, I'm experiencing this a little bit myself, is there is an accelerative effect from these systems that this that this generation of the systems is is you're right, is is a bit, you know, a stochastic parrot, but it does create very real uh, performance improvement gains, productivity enhancements, and ultimately, you know, there should be, con you know, the, the expectation is there'll be a feedback loop where the models are helping improve themselves fast enough that we we see it. Um, but the breakthroughs right now are all human and the human feedback. There's a like a CR, there's an acronym for it that I can't remember. But yeah. we're the, training, the we're training those models <laughs> ourselves at the moment. Yeah. The, the other the thing potential. to keep your eye on is Oracle Cloud. So I learned just a little bit about how Oracle Cloud was built. Not enough, so just enough to be dangerous, but yeah. um, but it seems to me from what I was hearing, the MSPs are really starting to look at. Oracle for cost savings, but also the way they've built the cloud. And, you know, people will talk about technology like it's the next best thing and everybody should have understood this a long time ago and it may just be false. But what I'm hearing is I think it takes a lot, lot, lot less power to run the kind of capacity that it takes for a lot of reasons about like bare metal, blah, 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 um, that Azure and AWS kind of uh, don't have access to being like all the way back to bare metal. I don't know. There, there are things that might be look, uh, worth looking forward, uh, looking into about Oracle because of what I was hearing. And that's all I know. So that's my gift to you. <laughs> There's a or, Oracle. I, I, I consistently hear an, uh, an, uh, a theme of don't, don't underestimate Oracle, but then I, also, don't see. I don't run into a lot of people who are actually using it either. So uh, it's interesting. Klaus, what were you? What were you trying to say? Uh, the um, so you were talking about doomsday scenarios uh, mm. and, and and the lack of the dystopian uh, talk about it. Um, I think on the technological side, we we've pretty much already resigned ourselves that well, the cat's out of the bag. Like the general AI is here just to stay. Um, the the part where where it could become worrisome is that it's accelerated a trend that we've talked about in the past. That technological technological change has outpaced um, legal changes. Definitely. So um, and and again, like the the legal system has always moved at a linear pace. And we, we, we've seen technological changes now making social changes uh, at an exponential pace. So um, this, again, this has the potential of, of leading to longer lasting runaway implications. So it would be uh, um, in, 
it will be interesting to uh, to keep an eye on this and, and see where it goes. You, I think we're you, about to see a big move in hardware. In the hardware? Hardware, yeah. Between Risk Five, what Intel is doing, Apple making its own chips specifically for AI, mm. um, we're about to see a new, a completely new generation of um, race to the top in hardware. Arm is also because, trying to enter the desktop. Uh, yep. processor server Makes and sense. there is now several um several manufacturers who are trying to put uh gen ai uh socs into um personal devices like cell phones so i so let me can I can I decompose that for a second because I I feel like it's super interesting. By the way, um, I'm I'm excited to keep going in in this this open conversation the way we're going because I think it's really it's really exciting. The topic for the day the day is one we keep delaying um, from July um, about lean and lean uh, the intersection of lean and data and analysis. Um, the topic for next week is supposed to be what controls can be applied to LLMs. And I, I think we might um, walk towards that more in this conversation, but I'm, I, I love the data center piece and the hardware piece at the moment. So I'll, I just wanted to set expectations on, on where the conversation would go. Um, the, I, I've heard the assessment that there are some really interesting AI chips coming from the other vendors, right? AMD, ARM, um, specifically, and and Intel. Sorry, I shouldn't leave them out. Um, and but Nvidia's got this lock with CUDA, and it's going to be right. Nobody's going to replicate CUDA. Is is there just going to we're just going to merge alternate stacks on top of CUDA? I, I still don't always understand how CUDA has the the market lock that it it has. Or NVIDIA, I guess I should say, with CUDA. Um, as far as the market lock, I, I guess it, it, it comes back to their history with GPUs. Mm. Like CUDA came out in, in an era where NVIDIA GPUs were the only high-performing GPUs. This was before the AMD, like, redesigned their GPUs with the RDNA uh, uh, platform. So as essentially, um, in, NVIDIA made itself the de facto standard. And okay. uh, that there hasn't been any licensing collaboration to, to bring CUDA to other GPUs. So that means that NVIDIA is still the only CUDA platform. Um, given that they are the de facto uh, standard, it also means that anyone who is already familiar with CUDA is going to continue using CUDA, aka NVIDIA. So until there is an alternate platform that provides um, a 10x improvement in, in some kind of direction, whether it's cost or performance or um, 
capabilities. Uh, CUDA is going to, at least in, in my opinion, stick around. But I mean, so their GPUs are just that much better. Is it? I mean, AMD. AMD bought um, and incorporated. Um, <laughs> they also ran uh, AMI. Who was it? That was because uh, they, they they are a CPU plus uh, graphics company. ATI. Um, ATI. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Right. I mean, so so they they've got the history also with with GPUs. They should. That that's what's so surprising, right? They should have it. I mean, right. You... So ATI uh, versus NVIDIA had had been a, a long history, yes. Um, mm -hmm. But the, there was again a, a period. Um, I want to say from around. 2005 to maybe three years ago or, or five years ago, uh, where uh, where AMD's um, video cards uh, just had not been able to keep up on, on the high-end performance side. In the performance the, the side, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. so, so, so now, again, like this was... Before uh, dedicated uh, like GPUs for uh, for for processing uh, or for machine learning were available, so this was where a, re a researcher would have to use like off-the-shelf gaming GPUs for for the research. Uh, it turns out that at that time, in that period, Nvidia was the clear winner. Like the the the. The top end performance was always occupied by Nvidia, and arguably by 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 many. And, and I I haven't I haven't kept up with it, but but I believe it's still the case that Nvidia still holds holds the top end performance spot, right? And and that end. But and that means yeah, that, but if you can't get yeah. the chips, the performance doesn't matter at all. <laughs> this right. is right. I mean, if I'm if I'm buying a, a gaming PC, I I mean, I might have a preference for NVIDIA, but I don't. You know, right. I if I I won't I I won't not buy the computer if I have to put an ATI card in. As a matter of well, re replacing the cards is painful from a data center infrastructure perspective. Yeah. But but but, it, but essentially, what this means is that that a researcher that begins their, their journey into machine learning into into ai uh, research they begin with commodity hardware right so so when when they're given the choice of, of uh procuring hardware uh that is that needs to be multifunction for them they're going to choose nvidia still because it it, it has cuda support and, and, it's, right. and it still allows them to use it as a desktop, uh, which means then which that means once they, they are able the to, to graduate into data center GPUs, they're going to continue using NVIDIA. Yeah. So, which is again, like they've established themselves as the de facto standard. It, I, I would welcome competition though. It just, okay, it just, so look at the chart. Ahead, yeah. Sorry, so look at the chart that I just put in the chat. Their key challenger is the top company, Samba Nova. 
There's another company that's not listed here that's actually Toronto-based that's trying to do something similar with RISC-V. There's Mm. a lot going on, but of these companies, Sambanova is clear winner because they have two sets of chips, not only the generative AI stuff, but the regenerative for uh, the processing. So they're basically breaking out the hardware into different levels and and designing specialized chips. This is kind of like FPGA on steroids kind of idea and definitely worth checking out because they're making a lot of inroads. Yeah, and this is where I think uh, is the like a a competitor to NVIDIA has the the best chance to to become um, popular is not so much in the data center, but in but towards the edge. Yes, that was my next point because I I was just listening to a webinar um, today's Thursday Tuesday um, with respect to the use of edge coming from the telcos by the way. Um, it was how they want to get into the game because they've missed out on cloud so much. So they're trying to get into uh, autonomous networking and then from that, building the stack up towards the app level and doing it with the idea of as a service, network as a service, and then everything as a service thereafter. And they're looking at buying one of these companies who's leading with the uh, next generation of AI chips. Also, don't count out HP because they're doing a hell of a lot of research in this. And they've always been known for high-performance computing, as has been IBM. That's true. Right When they bought platform computing years ago, it was exactly for this kind of purpose, not the direction that they were taking at the time, but for this purpose. So oh, they also bought Cray, yeah. Yes, they did. So there, there's, you know, I think we're going to start seeing new models. And, and what I keep hearing a lot about is the resurgence of what we used to call parallel, which then became high performance. Hmm. Okay. Parallel computing. Yeah. I, I do agree very strongly that um, there's a lot more innovation going on in the hardware side than, than people think. They assume that cloud has just wiped all this stuff out. Um, but there, there's a lot, um, going on. Um, yeah, if, if somebody, you know, actually has a real realistic alternative to, um, NVIDIA create some competition and improved inventory, the, the market is set to really change, right? Cause we've gen- we've generated the ROI and all of a sudden we have a Jevons paradox situation where the chips are available. Um, it's really been a, a strange market that found NVIDIA so dominant. Like, like the market usually doesn't want, you know, doesn't doesn't like to have this this individual dependence on on a on a well, I guess Intel. But even Intel, we've we've we have had alternatives to the Intel um markets make yeah. sure that we had alternatives. Well, what I think is going to be very interesting is when one of the um, CSPs decides to buy one of these companies, 
<laughs> and I hear yeah. no, no. I, I mean, right. there's been a lot of there's been a lot of chatter in the in the back rooms of back rooms, so to speak, around Sambanova and also Cerebus. Cerebus, uh, Apple's been making inquiries because they're late in the game and they want to get into it big time. And even though they've done their M2s and you know their own chip designs, it's not so easy for um, an AI marketplace that's exploding, not only for scale, but also just because are you really going to trust Foxconn to do this? I, I actually feel like Apple is well-placed to adopt um, like AI, Gen AI SOCs though, because they, they already have the, the the chip architecture, like as you said, with M2, where they right. they've they've already delegate certain tasks like audio processing, video processing to SO to SOCs. So this will be just another task that is delegated. Amazon's got their own chips for all this stuff too. Isn't isn't so you know, could they be bringing their chips to market in a more more generic package, and only through their 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 platform? I think it's possible, but I don't think it's probable, because if you look at their numbers in reporting and speak to people inside, Amazon Cloud is not doing nearly as well as it used to. So true. I mean, that was one of the conversations too. Is um, Azure's finally overtaken them? Yeah, overtaken. Yeah. Yes, from a revenue perspective. Oh. But it's it's going to wow. be very interesting because, regardless of who acquires whom, I think we're going to see two things. Flesh out of this very quickly. I got, I got uh, say with mind on this on this cloud on this cloud revenue share numbers. Azure includes all the Office 365 revenue as well. If you take that out, AWS is still ahead. Well, you can't take it out. <laughs> it, 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 there's definitely a, a synergy there, right? It's it's a software as a service, sure. Yeah, people are using cloud that they don't even know that they're using cloud because they're using those products. Anyway, I, I actually yeah. think I actually think that, and then I'll yield the floor to Joanne on this. I, I think the generative AI um, wave is the thing that's going to finally unify the office, the office suite pieces in cloud with the backend pieces. That that's they've been separate estates. But the generative AI pieces are—I think—you're going to see this that change quite a bit. That—that that has been one of the major themes at uh, Google Next this summer. Yeah, and I think it's going to continue because you know, and I think of this in multi dimensions when it comes to generative AI. But one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is the fact that. We're enamored by it because it is the ultimate in human machine interface. And the more autonomy we put into organizations, whether it's through cloud or other means, the more this becomes the bridge, if you will, to the creation of truly cyber physical systems with human in the loop. And this is our way into those cyber physical systems. 
So whether it's Tesla and autonomous driving or in manufacturing or in any other industry, if we start looking at it as like, this is the ultimate interface for us to communicate with the equipment, that's what draws us to it, number one. The more smart or cognitive it actually becomes, the more we're going to need the processing, but the cloud tends to fade into the background of ubiquity. It's not so much where is your cloud, you know, where is your storage facility? We don't care about that anymore. What we care about is how we can quickly and easily get the data that we want or the information that we want. So because Mm -hmm. it's like the ultimate HMI, this is what's going to drive new ways of putting that capability into hardware and into the architecture, if you will, right? That's where edge is going to take off because you can put some of it into edge devices in ways that you could not previously, whether it's edge computing or edge devices. Right. And, and well, but I think going back to Diane's question about um, Tesla and their training algorithms, um, I, I think that, you know, we, we've got LLMs on one side, but the improved feedback loops here aren't only um, only aren't only LLM and training those models. It's actually more general uh, learning right. systems. Yeah. And and because they're learning systems, there's nothing that prevents an LLM front end to that learning system. Right. And right. And we have improved improved interaction and actually to collect the exactly. data. Exactly. That that's where it gets really interesting is the LLM can actually have a human interface, pulls more of the training data, right? To the to Diana's question about the and I haven't driven a Tesla and given it feedback, but you're saying there's a button you push when it does something wrong. It could actually be that having a conversation with you, get more more syntactic data, collect it back, right? It could actually step up the analysis pieces here and you would have a better experience. Be yes. And, and so totally, the type- it'd be like telling uh, your Tesla, you know, the Tesla's like, where would you like to go today? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure. I want to just take a, a, a drive. It's like, well, during your drive, what kind of things would you like to see? That's what we're going to start seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Should we stop at McDonald's? Here's a coupon. <laughs> Don't oh, laugh. There's another dystopia. Another right opportunity there. to advertise to me. Uh, That's right. And oh, Lord. so, uh, you know, so, you really so shouldn't something... go by there. Your health, your your cholesterol score. Now, now we're back to that that uh, pizza ordering video uh, uh, AI. Interaction video. Yeah. But but the interesting part about it is one of the things that has come to be a thing of late is how do you protect the privacy of the individuals in the autonomous car? Do you want that conversation recorded? Do you want to be, mm. you know, liable for what you say when you have an expectation of privacy? And how much of that is going to go back to the LLM? Well, it's even more than that. What about the, so you can put the Tesla in sentry mode and video, Mm -hmm. anything that walks by your car, which as soon as you get like facial recognition, I mean, the implications are pretty crazy. 
yeah, like you're searching for some criminal or something and it picks you up at Costco walking by my car. I don't know. I mean, that's, that gets a little dystopic, but you're right. There are, there's a lot of data that they're capturing um, internally and externally that people might not want to necessarily share. So did you Think guys about see people that, on buses. Did you guys see that that AI generative AI pilot program I I socialized a, a few weeks ago? Uh, well, if you didn't, what I did was, yeah, my whole social media marketing game is crap. So if you guys didn't see it, that means <laughs> it's that not I'm not you. Social media marketing has gone to crap since uh, Twitter. Yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, so basically what I said was we'll come in and we will sh we will d demonstrate uh, data governance and data privacy for enterprise training data through using the matrix data pipeline and connecting it to an AI API endpoint like uh, chat GPT um, um, for or um, uh, enterprise chat GPT enterprise. Right. And it basically became very obvious that nobody's even thinking about any of these data privacy and governance issues that it turns out are actually a requirement for being able to adopt generative AI in an enterprise context. It, 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 it was like, oh, fuck, sorry for the language. But this is to I saw the same thing when we were trying to re, when we rebranded PrivOps and went after GDPR use cases that, you know, data privacy, people are like, I'm not going to spend money on operational issues with regard to data privacy regs, because the people driving that bus are go governance people and they're lawyers and they don't care. And the CIOs don't care because if the board finds out that they don't even know where all the data is, much less how to control it from a privacy perspective, they would be thrown out of the office. It, you know, I mean, data hygiene, the, the state of data hygiene is not that far progressed since it did, since from where it was five years ago, right? And it's like, okay, what do we do with that? No, but nobody's thinking about how, about these questions, except folks like us. And maybe that's because we're the cloud 2030 group, right? You know, it, it's a data hygiene is a very polarized field. Um, it, it's either a first class citizen, because you're an enterprise and, and, and you're obliged to implement it for regulatory reasons, or it, it, it it's barely a blip on the board. Well, the problem is you've got data engineers that are the data equivalent of server huggers uh, in the cloud computing era. They are uh, cust custom data integration code huggers. Custom data integration. Is that huggers with a U or, or huggers with an O? <laughs> Good one. Two G G O. Oh, okay. <laughs> Augers. 
there's a there's a meme same, in there's a meme in there that there's only one letter difference. Yeah, same uh, difference. It's I mean we've t- talked about my trials and travails and running getting into technology knife fights with data integration teams. So it's it's just another side of that same coin. I put the uh, picture reference in the chat. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But yeah. but this notion of of privacy and HMI is really going to come, I think, to the forefront in the next little while. Oh, you're absolutely right, Joanne. There's no question it will. Yeah. But is that is that a year, two years, five years down the road? I, I Six am months. <laughs> All right. We need wow. to get uh, an operational definition of what forefront means, and I'll bet you a dollar on it. I that think it's such a different Canadian. conversation for U.S. versus non-U.S. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, I would say forefront mm. or, or like what, what it means for it to become uh, to be in the forefront. Uh, there is going to be a sizable case whether civil or, or legal that puts it in the news and then everyone is jumping on it. It's going to have to be something like that because, yeah. Yep. So so well, essentially think, the, the, the equivalent of solar winds for, for this. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. I think it, 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 it thought occurs to me that uh, the ability to incorporate generative AI as a competitive advantage is directly linked to an enterprise's current data governance maturity. So the the folks that are already mature in terms of data governance will have a leg up on everybody else in terms of being able to monetize their enterprise data via generative AI. I I see it more as an inverse bell curve. So yes, the the ones that have governments are in place are able to benefit, but on the other spectrum, the, the ones that don't care at all about governments have for them it's a greenfield project hmm. yes yes so clayton uh christensen disruptive innovation you know not within the enterprise but at the industry level with new entrants because yeah, and, 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 and if you're in, in a market that, that has yeah very, very little regulation like let's say china right yeah, the data is, is almost always public. You just do whatever you want with it. So, <laughs> yeah. Hey. I don't know about that. I think it's going to be industry based. I I mean, what I, what my conversations with the banks have been, they're already highly regulated and governed, and they're the way they produce models is already governed, and so they're they're already applying these rules. Um, to the, these, they're trying to apply these rules to the tech. Um, but to, to sue, you're going to have to, you're, it would have to be a solar flare, solar flare um, issue. Ugh. 
So I, I, I just, but I, but I just don't, I don't like, we are already in a world of, you know, near daily breaches of people's confidential information. Um, I guess, I guess that's different credit card numbers and birthdays and genetic heritage are one thing if you're actually exposing people's you know private chat interactions and some of the like hey you know what would it be that would that would <laughs> already, already compromise uh, which makes well, it, think, which makes it unfortunately you know laissez-faire on it um, well think uh, about what would happen if slack got hacked or zoom got hacked yeah. and information was released that way that's intellectual sure, property of the corporation. It, it would be devastating, and it would be even more devastating because you could now turn the chatbots to analyze and find the things that were of interest in that in that model. But that's still not an AI governance problem. That's a it's a current application governance problem. Um, this would I, I think. think yeah. yeah, this would take us. I think similarly in in order, a field similar to how um it became news that certain app vendors were constantly using the microphone to listen in on, on conversations to oh, yeah. to target ads at you um like facebook slash meta um and yes the the impact of that ended up being relatively minor because it ended up being socially accept accepted that like, yeah I use Facebook of course they're gonna listen to me which I don't agree with but that end ended up being the sentiment among a large portion of the population with AI slash LLM we're gonna see probably something similar where so, uh, some portion of the population is going to see uh, what is inevitably going to be an abuse of LLM data by some company. Mm -hmm. The question is, is, is yeah. not if, it is when and who. Um, <laughs> yeah, now, true. some are, are, are going to, to, to rile against that. Uh, and, and try to exclude LLM uh, as much as possible. Other ones are are going to take a more fatalistic approach and say like, well, I, I'm just going to start assuming that everything I do and, and, and everything I interact with is is public and um, they, they're going to go with it for the convenience instead of the, the privacy. Uh, but ultimately, what this is again going to, to, to bring forward is a legal discussion in, uh, among governments against, uh, and in, in regulatory uh, bodies to say, well, these are the rules that need to be implemented for something to interact in, in, in this jurisdiction. Just like right now, for example, Meta and uh, Twitter slash X are being told to um, to explain their behavior with regards to um, unfiltered uh, quote unquote news 
with oh, regards yeah. to the the conflict in uh, uh, Israel slash Palestine. No, it's uh, um, that, and 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 that you know that could actually create some of the reckoning we're talking about, where um, uh, we haven't had the political will to to try and govern that speech in, at all, or and go in the other direction. Maybe maybe this will this will push something over. I don't know. An interesting thing. Uh, just as a note, I've got. Um, I'm going to have to have a hard stop on the meeting today. At, at the top of the hour. So quick question for you, Rob. Um, yeah. I met Jason Carillon, the chief innovation officer of Flux Central at Infrastructure. Uh -huh. Are are you guys tight? Uh I know him. I haven't seen him in ages. Um uh -huh. big guy. But, but yeah, a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. My I believe from my open stack days. We might work together. I'm excited about that. That'd be, that'd be cool. They're a good company. And I'm always trying to figure out how to collaborate with people. So it's harder than I would expect. It was interesting. I mean, I don't know if this, I think this is an interesting conversation for this group, but, you know, he's the chief innovation officer. And I always find it interesting to ask people how they define innovation um, because it's so broad. And I don't know, like, what does it actually mean? So I think innovation is interesting. And what was the definition that you heard? Um, he's like, yeah, that's kind of a joke. Um, he, he's like, he's like, I'm just always trying to, you know, put the structures behind what we're trying to get ahead of in the marketplace. So um, it, it wasn't. He didn't. He didn't go through any specific process with me, but also he was massively jet lagged. He'd just gotten off the plane uh, from uh, Singapore, so we're going to continue the conversation. But um, but it is. He did. He did agree that it's a. It's a hard. Uh, it's a hard description or, or definition. I. We could have we could have a whole actually I'm gonna add that to the backlog because I actually I actually think it would be fun um to to define innovation. Where did my the agenda? Uh, so, so by the way, I'm that's my next chapter for the draft chapter for the book that I'm working on right now. Is and it's really so the 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 chapter title is actually culture and innovation. And, and and I'm I'm excited about it. I'm I've, I've got a lot of stuff uh, that that I want to unpack there. I'm I'm going to move the intersection of lean and data analysis into into uh, a future. I, I'll I'll find a date for it. It's <laughs> like there's there's certain topics we have that are always on the on the leading at, uh, on the the cusp of being discussed, but we have other we have other topics that more interesting um but yeah I, I i think that it's it's an important question i think in, in relevance for today um there's a there's a really interesting if you'll permit me some some summary type thinking um because we we've been talking about on the hardware side that there's a lot of innovation coming right i think we even use that phrase there's a lot of new ideas there's a lot of new technology um, 
And it's fascinating to me that their innovation isn't just, do you have the chips or do you have the processors? It's actually how you apply that technology into, into use. So we've, we've got this, um, and because Joanna and I, I think see the, the this market where the, the OEM vendors and the chip silicon is like really exciting and there's fat, there's all sorts of cool stuff. There's better economies, there's better performance, there's alternate architectures that have opened up new opportunities. But that alone is not sufficient to change the market and bring that innovation. And that to me is the difference between it would be a CTO and a chief innovation officer. It's actually like, all right, how do we get this cool tech into people's hands? Mm-hmm. Um, it's from- also how, how do we, sorry, Diana, how, how we use it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as you mentioned, how it's used and how it's applied, you get closer and closer to my state of being, which is around value. Yeah. To that point, too, I think one of the problems with innovation, one of the uh, hard things about innovation is that so few companies, especially publicly held or private private equity held companies, are willing to have as many failures and loss. You know, everybody's looking for their ROI. um, And we don't hear about the we don't hear about the failures. We only hear about the disruptors. Right. So the I just feel like building a culture of innovation really allows people to fail a lot, you know, which like Jeff Bezos said to the world, like, screw you. We're not going to make a profit for a long time. And you're just going to have to deal with that because we're going to be trying new things. And I I don't think a lot of uh, companies have the appetite or whatever, the resilience to deal with that kind of a environment. That's my, you know, that's my take on it. Well, the love, disruptive love innovation, experimentation, disruptive innovations always 100% of the time require incumbents to self cannibalize, and very few are willing to do that. Wait, say more about incumbents to cannibalize. What do you mean? Uh, what I mean is oh, like take up your own market share, y- yeah. So, you're if you've got a large market. You're going to be engaging in sustaining innovations because a disruptive innovation means transforming the business model or a new market, down market or whatever that is. But it's going to it's going to put your current revenue streams at risk. Yeah. Diana, if you use a three horizons model. okay, if you get a picture of that or I'll send you one. It basically talks to what Tyler is mentioning, but the notion of fail fast is is a fallacy because failure doesn't necessarily reveal itself right away. It may be a long time down the road before you realize that the left turn you took should have actually been a right. And so the notion, uh, I disagree with the notion of fail fast because there's value in failure no matter when it happens. It's a learning curve. It's a it's 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 valuable to the organization. Why are you dancing around, Rob? I was I lost my balance. <laughs> Almost well, lost so my balance. This is especially personal to me because one of the things that I'm seeing as a sales expert of years is the model for sales is completely 100 percent broken. But yeah, 
that there's so much pressure that um, I agree with you totally, Joanne, fail fast. But in my world, VPs of sales and salespeople get fired after one. Like the one company I worked with that I worked with for 12 years had a lot of space for people to reiterate or discover failure and move. And we dominated our industry. But so few companies have an appetite for that now. So this is also very meaningful to me <laughs> um, as an in the innovation in any area. But we need to innovate in sales. We have to innovate in sales. I, this is going to be a fun. This is going to be a fun conversation. I'm tempted to. I'm going to switch it and do it next week. Um, I'm going to be gone. Oh, then I'll do it on the 26th. We'll do it the 26th. Okay. Um, and with that, I, I do need to wrap us up. This was fun. I, I love the unexpected direction. And Diana, I really do appreciate the show debriefs. I actually, I find those to be incredibly valuable. So thank you. Good. Good. You're welcome. Wow. I love how the Cloud 2030 Roundtable groups connect the dots in ways that I don't hear going on anywhere else. Actually linking AI, hardware, chipset, silicon, the infrastructure that's getting built, even the power requirements necessary for it. Um, and this is all because we are out and about in the communities and then come back and sit down and look at how these things work. It is the magic of what we're doing with these conversations. And I hope you will choose to be a part of our regular routine on Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, you can find out more at the 2030.cloud, see our whole agenda, jump in when you can, or just come in, say hi, and add your thoughts. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.